This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My final guest of the season is the acclaimed screenwriter and best-selling author Delia Efron. Unfailingly wise, warm and witty, Delia is perhaps best known as co-writer of the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks smash hit You've Got Mail with her sister, the writer and director Nora Efron. But Delia's new memoir, Left on 10th is the kind of story that would outrom, if not outcom, anything Nora could have come up with. At 72, Delia found herself quite literally left on 10th Street in Manhattan when her husband of 37 years, Jerry, died of cancer. It was just three years after the death of her beloved big sister, Nora. A year later, she reconnected with Peter, a man she didn't even remember dating in college. It was love at second sight. It was at this moment in life where I thought, that's never going to happen again. I'm never going to feel like I'm 35 again, not 20s. I never wanted to be my dad. This kind of passion and love. I mean, it was just so fabulous. Now 77, Delia joins me from California to talk about getting a second chance at life and love in your 70s. We also discuss the imperfection of sisterhood, why she's a lifelong warrior, how friendship came to be her superpower and being addicted to blow dries. Oh, and if someone wants to crush your dreams with their big fat foot, get out. I love your mug. It's huge. I just bought it. I've been looking for a mug for my cappuccinos for like a year. That was exactly the right size. And I found it in Los Angeles about a month ago. So many mugs are too small. Also, they're too narrow for a cappuccino should have a little more space in it. I drink one a day and it's like the highlight of my (laughs) (laughs) Just one coffee or one cappuccino? One coffee. It's the cappuccino. Well, thank you. I'm honoured to be your first ever podcast. I want to thank you for making me ugly cry this morning in Cafe Nero. (laughs) 
glad to hear it. <laughs> I was just sitting there sniffing behind my mask and my glasses. <laughs> the point when your friend brings you a cupcake and you don't really fancy it, that was the point I got really worried. Oh, really worried. No, well, you know, I lost all interest in food from the minute the chemotherapy was just, I don't know, I was in the hospital. Well, I was out of it for a little while, but I was back in. It was 100 days, and uh, I didn't really start eating again until the last uh, two weeks. So, you know, I mean, they give you food, too, but, you know, I mean, it's a killer. The chemotherapy is is really powerful. That's a huge deal for you, isn't it, food? Food's a real strand throughout the book, so to not to not be interested. Yeah, I grew up in a family. My mother was a working woman who's very proud of it. She had grown up poor and she was really enjoying the fact that she, you know, was a screenwriter and made money. And and so we had a cook in the house who was fantastic. I mean, the greatest, Evelyn Hall was her name, and she just knew Southern cooking. And I would come home from school, there would be brownies and and chocolate chip cookies, and she made the best pies I've ever tasted. And dinner every night, we ate in the dining room, and we, when I was young and my parents really liked each other, it was a very (laughs) joyful experience. And we played games and told stories and you know, every time I said something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. I was, <laughs> we were all trained to be writers. All four sisters are writers. But food was the center of it. It really was. You know, Nora was even more obsessed with food than me. But Hallie and Amy, they are great cooks both, you know, but but not fancy, you know, just great, good home cooking. Yeah, it doesn't have to be fancy as long as it's tasty. Mm-hmm. You've got a sweet tooth, haven't you? It's really cake that comes, keeps rising to the surface. (laughs) There's a cake thing that I want to ask you later. Don't let me forget to ask you the cake thing. Um, What point was it that your parents stopped liking each other? How old were you? Eleven. Eleven. God, you remember really specifically. Oh, oh, I mean, it was, I think all my sisters, was like a switch or something, but I think they just flipped into alcoholism and and they must have always, they were always drinking, I suppose. But then, you know, my mother really went mad. She began drinking and, and absolutely, they had the most terrible fights. We were up all night, all the time. It was a very strange thing, but I had 11 good years. 11 good years, a lot of good years. It is. And um, it was just very rough after that. You refer through on and off throughout the book to being a, to being a warrior and conditioned to be a warrior. Was that unique to you? Were you the warrior in the family? No, I, I you know what, I can't answer for my sisters. I think we're all only children in some way because how we relate to our parents and how we cope with the what they put on us is, is always completely different. And how our parents relate to us is different. So, um, you know, the age that this began was all... But um, I certainly know that if you're raised in a family where you're always thinking, if you say the wrong thing, they're going to go off. And you think as a child, you have control, which you don't have. You have no control. But you're constantly thinking, if I, you know, if I look right, are they coming from the left? If I look left, are they coming from the right? You get groomed to a kind of anxiety at a very young age. And I don't know, I, I don't think I was would ever have been the most relaxed child in the world. I was scared of big birds and also, you know, like <laughs> swallows, but, you know, I, I was a scared cat, but I don't know if it would have produced this level of 
of worry that you that you end up with if you're if your home isn't safe and it wasn't yeah there's a line I think there are two Gales in the book aren't there but one Gail M there is a line that she says that terror is the background noise one lives with while being in life yeah that's such an amazing line I think it will resonate yeah with I, so I many people Gail M is an extraordinary person <laughs> she was really amazingly helpful to me when I was going through this you seem to have surrounded yourself with incredible women. You seem to have way more than your fair share of incredible women in your life, to be quite honest. No, no. First, when you get sick, as sick as I was, and also just getting older, but you learn things about yourself. And I discovered, I knew it, but I really learned it, that the thing I had done best was friendship. It was this thing I had done. When I was diagnosed with leukemia, you have to, you're going to go on a journey. And who you bring with you is very important. And I just had these women with hearts and brains and love. And I look at, oh, this is something I did well. I was, I was a lucky person that I understood that. And I think having sisters, sisterhood is very imperfect and... It's full of all sorts of things, you know, joy and anger and jealousy and all sorts of things. But it taught me how to have friends. I knew girlfriends. I just think I just was the luckiest person in the world. I had been able to find very special women in my life and and men. It's such a skill, I think, you know, because friendship is... You know, it isn't something you necessarily know how to do. And, you know, you've said like your, you know, your mother didn't teach you anything about love or relationships or, and yet here you are, you've built all these incredible, and that's the thing that came through. I mean, there are so many things that came through from the book and it's, I have to say, I think it's absolutely wonderful and I completely fell in love with it. I mean, you've said it's to do with having sisters. Were you particularly close? Because Nora's the eldest, isn't she? And you're the second. Mm-hmm, that's right. And then Hallie and then Amy. Were you particularly close to Nora? We were. Because you're closer. Yes, we were three years apart and um, Hallie and I were four years and Amy and Hallie are five. So, I mean, she was like a very bossy older sister and she would <laughs> tell me, you know, how to do, I'm sure it was, my birth was a horrible shock to her, but you know, she <laughs> decided to just make me hers. And, and, and she was an extraordinary person from a very young age. I mean, so bright and amazing. And I, I just tried to do everything she did and couldn't even keep up on any level. Uh, so we were always close and she was always telling me, I mean, one of my favorite stories was um, I had gotten married when I was about 25 for really stupid reasons, just because someone asked me. And um, <laughs> I got very unhappy. I was very unhappy from the beginning anyway. I, but I was trying to decide whether to leave him. And I was in New York and Nora said, do you want to know what I think? <laughs> and I said, no. And she said, I think you should leave him. <laughs> like, You've got no choice. I'm right. telling you. That's it. Right. You know, no, sorry, you're not going to not hear this. So, and then we collaborated a lot. I mean, I think collaborations, uh, I've written a lot about that, but that's a very, it's great in certain circumstances with You've Got Mail. It was just a fabulous project. We we always tried to find something that we agreed that we had shared. And in this case, our mother had loved children's books so much. So we made, you know, uh, Kathleen Kelly character, the owner of the um. bookstore, so that there was always something in there that was personal. But I knew I needed to have my own life. And writing, writing is your fingerprint. 
You know, the yeah. minute I started writing, I knew, oh, I am not my sister. You know, I can't go around trying to be my sister. But we were very close. That's a strand that runs all the way through Left on 10th. Actually, uh-huh. the fact that you're not, you're not your sister. Mm-hmm. That comes up right from the first page to the to the very last. Have you felt like you've had to prove it, or is it something that came through when you got ill? She's gigantic, impressive, and wonderful, and ambitious in a way that I mean, I want to spend all day in a room with a with a computer. I'm really just a writer at heart. That's that's who I am. But she was extroverted, and she wanted to direct, and she wanted to boss everyone in the room around. <laughs> you know, that was who she was. But there was no question being the second that I needed, that I had spent my life just trying to be who I am. And um, and thank God for writing, because it told me immediately what my voice was. But the strange thing was that I knew within a, a year or two of her getting sick, I knew that I had a tendency for it because they did a bone marrow biopsy on me. And I was one of the few people who knew she was sick. It was scary. It was really scary. I didn't want to die of that. I didn't, you know, and then they were talking about doing a bone marrow transplant and we were met. We turned out we were a perfect match. And I thought, are we both going to get sick from this? You know, um, or am I going to save her? And am I going to die? You know, it was scary. I mean, there were so many panic feelings about the whole thing. You know, it's so strange. I just want to say about talking about this is all this stuff when you write it turns out to be gold, you know, (laughs) got this rich thing to investigate. So, but when it happened, believe me, it wasn't, it was just, Uh, I, you know, I remember thinking I need my own doctor. I need, you know, all that. But the strange thing was what I then got disease. My doctor said to me, you are not your sister. And what they meant was just that my disease under a microscope was different. It was the same actual diagnosis, but under a scope, AML is a very complicated thing and what they prescribe for and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, they just said that to me without even understanding the power of it, but they just wanted me to believe I could live. And so then they said, you are not your sister. And suddenly it felt like betrayal. And yet it could save me. So it was so loaded, just loaded, really, of the whole thing. So complex. And at that point, you mean like you say you've been living with cancer for 10 years because you're you know, your husband and soulmate who of 30, Jerry, 35, had cancer and Nora had had cancer and kept it secret and and you knew that you had the potential for it. And your poor dog had cancer. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> poor, poor honey. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, part of what I had when I was a child was this constant living with anxiety. You know, what was going to happen tonight with it, you know. And so I was conditioned in a way to live with that level. And writing, you know, I wrote a book during it, The Line Is In, and it really helped me. It helped me uh, keep sane during that time. I'm getting older. I mean, you know, I don't think I'm the only person who's had multiple members in their family or, you know, mates start to get sick. I mean, when I'm 77 now. So, you know, this was this was my early 70s. You've said so many just incredible poignant things about Jerry that you described him as my compass. Such a wonderful description. And tells you so much about him. I mean, what point were you at in your life when you met him? I had left my first husband when I was 30, 31. And I knew I had not become a writer then. 
And I knew when I said to him, I, I think I want to be a writer. This was a big deal because, of course, my parents were writers. My sister was practically successful in the day she was born. And I for me to then take it on. Each of us sisters took it on later. I took it on at 31, Amy at 39, and Hallie at 45. I, those ages aren't exactly accurate, but they're near. And um, so it was this very large mountain to climb. And I said to him, you know, I think I want to be a writer, which if you have a dream and you speak it out loud, that is a very big deal. That is a commitment. Mm. And he said, I don't want you to be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, suppose you become famous. I don't want you to become famous. I mean, man, really, what can you say? Uh, so that I was said, your first husband. Yeah. Oh, so Nora I, was right. You know that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. She didn't even know that. And I said to him, I promise I won't be famous. Isn't that sad? Oh, God. I know. I knew I had to leave him. So um, I left him to become a writer. And I had we we'd had a, a small house in Providence, Rhode Island, and we sold it and we split the money. And I thought, I have two years and I have to become a writer. And I thought, okay, I've got to get published in the New York Times. Was that like the benchmark for yeah, you? Yeah, I knew that if I did, I could get work anywhere. That was the place. I mean, I could be in women's magazines for the rest of my life, but if I really wanted to be a writer... That's where I had to. It was almost the end of that time. I was down to like five hundred dollars, which which would have been hundred if I hadn't fallen in love with an orange coat. And um, and I was sitting at home one night eating chocolate pudding my way, which is that if you if you cook the chocolate pudding, it has a little skin on top. And so I made a little hole in the skin, and I was digging the pudding out from underneath the skin, and I was saving the skin for last. Okay? Yeah, fair enough. And I thought I'm eating like a child. And I wrote 500 words about how children eat food called How to Eat Like a Child. And I sold it to the New York Times. And overnight, I was offered a book contract. My phone was ringing off the hook. You know, I was in the phone book and I was a writer. That was it. 500 words on children. And it became a bestseller. And uh, I've been in this world ever since, you know, but I had to go for it. You know, I, I always say it's really, if someone wants to crush your dreams with this big fat foot, you better get out. Oh, so much. You had to leave him to get your voice, to find your voice. That's right. I had to get out. And then once you found your voice, you found everything else. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And then, and then I guess about four years later, you know, a friend brought Jerry over. They were in the neighborhood and they'd missed a movie. I happened to live in the middle of Manhattan and on Madison Avenue and 54th Street in, a, in this crazy little brownstone. And uh, he walked into the apartment and it was it was magic. So love is, it, it's just like, for me, it, it just strikes. And you've been lucky enough to have that happen twice. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, Peter, I don't even... Makes up for the awful first husband. Well, it was only, it was just... It was stupid. Look, your 20s, you can wreck your 20s and still have a life. And, and most people do wreck their 20s. It's kind of what they're for in a weird way. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you're out of college and you're on the loose and just stupid, young and scared. You said that after Jerry died, so this is like leaping forward the kind of 35, 37 years with Jerry, uh, that your young self started to resurface and it was banging around inside waiting to take me down? Yeah. You know, being single is a very vulnerable place to be. And in that period between leaving my first husband and my second, I mean, 
I could fall for men who were just ridiculous. Nobody with half a brain would fall for them. You know, that there's a way that you start to get manipulated and you feel vulnerable and you so want to be in love. So I I just felt when I was, you know, suddenly a widow again. I mean, I didn't actually think I was ever going to meet anyone, but I could feel that it's it's a strange world. I, I hate that word widow. I don't even like to use it. I think it's just a stupid word. It's so sexless. But I could just feel the vulnerability that I had felt when I was young. And um, because, I, you know, when I wrote that um, Verizon piece, when my internet crashed, I tried to shut mm. Jerry's landline and it crashed my internet. And uh, I wrote this piece about it for the New York Times because I've been in absolute hell. And it was the only way I knew how to process anything. So I wrote this piece and it men wrote me notes. It turned out to be a bird call, you know, and <laughs> so, and one just started keep coming at me. Like I said, I mean, he sounded the first notes sounded quite charming. And I said, well, you know what, let me have a couple of weeks to think about this. Cause I had to discuss everything with every girlfriend I had in the world right then. And of course. Yes. I mean, I barely leave the house without finding out if a girlfriend thinks it's a good idea. So still I said, I'll, I'll get back to you in three weeks. You know, and the emails just kept coming. And I thought, Oh, okay. People begin as they mean to continue. I mean, that's a rule to live by. But I could feel he was almost getting more interesting instead of less interesting. But at the same time, the healthy part of me knew he was getting less interesting. I just cut this person off, you know, completely. It's like that. Uh, what's that saying? If someone shows you who they are, believe them. Mm-hmm, mm. And it's like, how many times do you not do that yes. when you're younger? No. It's, just like- it's a very good advice for work too. If you well, if you work in the movie business, you know who you go into business with. But I'm just going to digress a tiny bit since you mentioned the movie business. While that was all happening, you know, Me Too was happening. Yes, wasn't it? True. Yeah, that was helpful. That was helpful. Well, and Peter, I mean, I what I meet a man who... You know, Again, you meet a second man who's great. I know, I meet a second man and he's a specialist in sexual harassment. And he's written yes. two actually brilliant books on them, on the subject. And he used to go into court and defend abused women in the 80s when it wasn't a popular thing, when it wasn't what the world was doing. He was doing it. You know, he's such a substantive guy. So that was very thrilling. It was helpful for me that that was going on uh, because it kept my my radar. Did it make you look back at, like you said, your working life and think about how things might have been different if that switch, that Me Too switch had flipped? I, I wrote books because I needed, one, to have my own voice, and two, because I could see that writers in the movie business and television business get fired. They don't own their work. So I write mm. a script that I think is really amazing. And they say, no, sorry, we want the truck driver to be an airplane pilot. You're fired. You know, that's that. And I did not want to go through life with things that didn't get made where I wouldn't hear my voice. I mean, a movie isn't a screenplay. It's a director's film, really. Mm. And I I wanted to have my own stories told. And I also knew in the Writers Guild of America, you can retire at age 53. And the reason you can is that almost nobody hires you after that age. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, the other thing I knew was that I could be a book writer and maybe even theater and trials and my essays. I do a lot of journalism essays. And I could go and I could find my things I wanted to write about that, that I didn't need to get approval for. But of course, the movie business is such a, if something does happen and working with Nora, I wasn't getting fired. So Mm. we had a kind of 
very joyful thing there. And of course, you get so much more money. So I would not live on 10th Street if I hadn't written The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and got fired off it and replaced by another writer. But... (laughs) is on there. But, you know, it's a kind of, um, it's an odd thing. You know, I mean, I share this credit with this person. I I don't know who she is. I know that structure is completely mine, but I didn't want to be angry. I didn't want to be angry. So you have two choices if you're a screenwriter, if you don't want to be angry. You become a director, which I do not want to be and I'm not suited to, or you write other things. And I started as a book writer. So it's really fun. You know, it's more fun for me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You said that you became more angry after Jerry died. Was that grief or was that a part of you that you you hadn't accessed because Jerry was around? It was because he died, I think. I was feeling very vulnerable and um, there was something about going places alone. that I suddenly was a single woman in a way that I hadn't been. If you just walked up to some guy at a party and just started chatting with him, there was something else going on. And some guy at the dog run, you know, I started talking to him about, I had my dog at the dog run, I started talking to him, and so he said, you know, I'm married, as if I was even remotely interested. Like you were hitting on him just because you were single. What? It's a kind of a crazy thing. So I just started to hang out mostly with, you know, my friends. And also new experiences were more threatening to me than I really like to be out at dinner and with friends uh, afterwards. But also, I think people started to ignore me. I think I was like the weakest member of the pack or something because uh, I ordered some food at a restaurant and, and the waiter said to me, that's that's a lot of dairy. And I thought, <laughs> what? 
I like Terry. <laughs> right. Oh, I know. It was like, oh, it was so crazy. And and I just thought, why is he saying that to me? You know? Um, and so there must have radiated off me the sense that I that I was wounded, you know. Yeah. You know, people respond in unconscious ways that they understand, you know. I mean, I had this this shrink when I was in my twenties and he said to me that what we think of is um you know, falling in love across a crowded room is really one neurosis spotting its own perfect neurotic match. <laughs> and I just think that I was generating something that, you know, I'm I'm heard. And and Gail M said to me, Oh, you always look so sad in the lobby. And I wasn't aware that I look sad in the lobby. We we live in the same building, so that's why she Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't walking past, you no. were hanging just yeah. lurking in the lobby. No. No. <laughs> So tell us about about Peter, how you how you met Peter. Well, I tried to disconnect Jerry's landline and ended up in what we call here Verizon Hell, which is um, Verizon was my was my phone company. Six months later, three days after the year of Jerry's death, actually, I get an email from Peter through my website, and it's just charming. We had had three dates when I was eighteen years old, so it was fifty four years before. And we had been set up by my sister, Nora. I had just had my book, Syracuse, published. And the last trip he took with his late wife was to Syracuse, which is a falling down place in Sicily and not the normal place that you would necessarily go. He had had trouble disconnecting his wife's phone. Nora, of course, had blessed this, you know, because she us up. He'd worked at Newsweek when she had. He'd been a, he was younger than her, but he had a, a, a summer job there as a sports writer. And, and she was on the clip desk, right? I mean, the, the boy in college has the summer job as a sports writer and he's on the clip Of desk. course, and yeah. <laughs> there you go. But I had no memory of him at all. I mean, none. I, I, to this day, I don't remember those dates. I, so you actually went on dates with him, but you don't remember? dates, And not only that, he met my parents because my parents had a play on Broadway for two years called Take Her, She's Mine. And he said to me, you know, we went to the theater with your parents. We went to see their play. And that was just stunning. You know, I said, were they awful? You know, I was, <laughs> I was going, you know, uh, he said, no, they were, you know, anyway, so I sent the email to, to my friend Jessie to see if she approved and if I should answer this person. And she said yes. So with the girlfriend's approval, I then wrote him back. And it was as if just lightning struck. I mean, the two of us started just exchanging the most, you know, wonderful emails. They're mostly in this book, in Left on Tenth, I used mm. because it, it tells the story of our loves yeah. as, as simply as it could be told. And we just started emailing back and forth, and then we started talking on the phone, and and then he flew east, and and then we had to really make a decision about, you know, falling in love in your seventies is, uh, you know, are you going to do it, or are you going to, because you know, death is so close, you can reach out and touch it, and so, but there was no stopping it. I mean, there was just no stopping it. He's so fabulous and wonderful, and it's a complete miracle. Did you even think about? that you know that it's like you say you're in both in your early 70s it's the starting a big intense new thing we had a long series I mean he had no problems with them and he's a psychiatrist and a Jungian analyst and he's he just didn't have any issues about it at all but I I really did and we had to have a really long talk about what it was like to fall in love and I I said to him very 
jokingly, because I do everything often that way. And I said, you know, if I get sick, I give you total permission to leave me. His wife had died of lung cancer. She wasn't a smoker, but she died of that. And um, he'd been through a similar long thing. And I said, you know, I give you total. And he said to me, I could never do that. I mean, he just stopped it right there, you know, and that was his nature. And what four months later in the midst of this absolutely fantastically fun. I mean, it was it was at this moment in life where I thought that's never going to happen again. I'm never going to feel like I'm 35 again, not 20s. I never wanted to be my this kind of passion. And I mean, it was just so fabulous. And it's complicated. You have to integrate somebody into the life you already had. But but it was really very special. And then and then four months later, because I was being checked every six months to see if I was sick. I walked into the doctor and she said, you know, she did blood work and came right up right that day. You know, you have leukemia. So, um, you know, I called up Peter and I said, (laughs) he got him between patients and he said, you know, I, I said, I have leukemia and he got on a flight to New York that night and, uh, he just took it. I mean, it's, this book is about the kind of care that he I just can't even almost describe how much he got me through this. And I mean, because ultimately when I did have the bone marrow transplant, I mean, he was in the hospital every single day. And I was, sometimes I, I knew he was there and sometimes I didn't even know. I mean, there, there, were, there was this moment when I was sick when my friend Meredith, amazing friend Meredith, uh, so smart about medicine and everything, when she said to me, you were in the ICU. And I said, what? She said, you were in the ICU for five days. And to this day, I have no memory of an ICU, not a speck. And then she told me what happened. I mean, part of writing this book was I interviewed all my friends who were on the trip with me. I looked at all the emails that Peter sent everyone during this time, and he was never negative. He was never like, God, this is a nightmare, which it was. Mm. You know, it was always Julia and I are going to get through this. And uh, see, the weird thing is that you can be immensely sick and you can die, but the transplant can be working. And Peter, because he was a doctor, he could see, and they told him, the transplant is working. We don't know if we'll get her through, but the transplant is working. So, um, because it puts your body into, you know, terrible mess. But, um, you know, so when I wrote the book, I was able to find this. I mean, I already knew he was amazing, but this was really something. Yeah, the positivity of his emails are, I mean, I'm not that glass half full person. I'm just kind of not. (laughs) I identify much more with your, when you talk about flipping the positive to the negative, I could really identify with that. (laughs) So it was incredible to see the way he just kept on. Yeah. He just wouldn't let it in. He just wouldn't let it in. It's a complete nightmare. And uh, it got so deep and so dark, and um, which I wrote all about because mm-hmm. it, I was never a depressed person. I mean, I was an anxious person, but I've never dealt with depression before. But I got immensely, immensely deeply depressed, and I began to understand what that is for people. Um, you simply don't care about anything but exiting. That's all you care about. So... It, it went very dark, but Peter was just, you know, so just extraordinary, really. How was it to write about those days, the worst days when you'd had the bone marrow transplant, but, you know, you weren't out of the woods by any 
by any stretch. How did that feel? Quite the opposite. I mean, a bone marrow transplant, the the odds of, I mean, I would, I was giving 20% odds on that, you know, when the first time I saw the doctor, then he upped it to 40, which we still don't know why, but. uh, (laughs) It just sounded better, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Okay, it was in February 2021. That's when COVID began, right? Is it? it Yeah, on top of everything else, then COVID. No, 2020. 2020. I go to the doctor in February and he says, this worked. You know, you are fine. And the next day it's COVID and we're all in lockdown, right? And I I knew that, first of all, it took me a good two years after I went through this to ever think I would even write again. And But my my writer's heart started beating. And um, you were back. And I, yeah, I was, I was back. And also I knew I had an extraordinary story to tell. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer. I knew that I had had three absolutely extraordinary years of the loss of Jerry being alone, the new love, and then this illness. I mean, it was almost a present, you know, <laughs> as a writer. That's how that, that was. You were being, you were your parents' daughter then. It's like, yeah, exactly. So I had a friend, a young woman, just take everything out of my computer, every note I'd made from the moment Jerry died. I had actually made notes, which I don't. I don't keep journals, but I had made a lot of notes. And um, and then she printed out every email throughout that whole period. So I looked at it all and, and I knew... I knew I had something to write. And so we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything. And I had this book to write. I mean, and the amazing thing, because I really feel this so strongly, I was so traumatized from being that sick. And and honestly, when I when I got out of the hospital, I mean, you can always get it again for about another year. You're still vulnerable. But I, I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. I was in a wheelchair. I had to relearn absolutely everything that there was to learn. Um, and here I was, and and now I had a book to write. And, and it was, I was so traumatized. And then I started to write the book and it's like, I took it all out of inside and I just put it out there. And it, it, if you can dance it, write it, paint it, draw it, do something with it, knit it, something, with a trauma, I'm telling you, that's what you need to do because it was, it was joyful to write this book. And I mean, and I sent for my hospital records. I, did I mention that there were six thousand pages of in? Oh no! That was just oh, in I didn't even look at the outpatient records, and I started to read all this stuff, which I couldn't believe. Patient can't recognize her own palm. You know, things that you just. Oh get. my god. Like, oh God, this is material. <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> we moved eventually out, out to California just for the winter because it was more pleasant. And, and we didn't see anyone. We were living, we shared the house with my brother in law, Nick, and we just had everything delivered. And I sat in my office and wrote every day. It was a gift. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to say you're fortunate on any level if you get leukemia, but I was fortunate I got it before this. Yeah. Right. Looked at like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> looked at with Peter's glasses on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. So true. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I just wanted to ask you about a phrase which I absolutely loved, which is your friend's daughters. Have I said that right? I call them friend daughters. daughters. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't have kids. And I, you know, when I got to be older, I just discovered there's just so many young women who either don't get along with their mothers or have lost their mothers. And, you know, this is fantastic bond that you get where I, I feel like I have these friend daughters, uh, Natasha, Natasha, Jill, and I've got more than this actually, Heather, but I have a few others too. And, you know, you, you find out that you can have things and just not in the most conventional way that other people do. And in some ways it's, it's even can be less trouble. It's cleaner and fun, and 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 then they bother me too because they'll take me shopping because they have better taste than me, and you know, and they they give me advice on all sorts of levels. So, and one of them is Jill. She's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, I, I barely you know get on an airplane, so she, I model myself after her. So it, it's it's a, it goes both ways, friend mother, friend daughter. But they, yeah, they're my friend daughters. I mean. The morning after Jerry died, um, Heather just showed up at my doorstep with her roller bag, moved in and organized everything for me. And we didn't discuss it before or anything after, you know, I mean, it was just, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I feel that, I feel that we have very conventional ideas about how you have to live and what you get in life. And there's only this way to get it or that way to get it. And that's just not been true for me. And maybe that's true. I mean, I just, I just have these great younger girlfriends. Sometimes I mentor them. Some of them want to be writers, but it's not necessarily that. It really isn't. It's just, it's just, it's just great. It's just great. Where do you find them? It's just the same way I found my friends, right? It was a natural yeah. thing. It's like we're finding Peter, you know? I mean, friendship is, is as magical as, um, as falling in love, I think. Before I go to the questions um, I always ask at the end, I just want to ask you about hair because hair, like sisterhood and cake, well, food, hair is another strand that runs through. I'm a bit obsessed with hair, as you can probably tell. But it, it seemed like going for a blow dry was your safe place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I used to do this this uh, Twitter thing called the hair report because I thought women don't care about the weather. They only care what the weather is going to do to their hair. So, totally. I would, so I would write, you know, basically a hair report every, um, every week or so. But I found this absolutely amazingly wonderful. Oh, I'm totally traumatized, by the way, because I called him yesterday. I'm out in California right now. I'm going back to New York soon. And I, I missed him. Eugene, who's been doing my hair for 13 years, and he's brilliant. And who also made your wedding cake. Yes. Oh, he's the most amazing baker you've ever seen. I mean, oh his God. cakes are magnificent. Okay, so I call him up and I say, you know, hi, miss you. And he says, the salon closed. And I just like, I mean, this isn't a problem because he can go to another salon, which he is, and it's not that far from my house or anything like that. But it, you know, this COVID has just disrupted us. And this was an absolutely beautiful salon in a, in a townhouse that it was just, it just had so much charm. And every time I went there, I calmed down. And, you know, I mean, I wrote about the fact that, you know, like the day before Jerry died, I, I had to get a blow dry. I'm addicted to it. it it's what I, I don't have one right now in case you're staring at my hair, but. Um, no, I'm not staring at your hair. <laughs> no. Okay. Eugene's never in a bad mood either. He's always cool. And it's just something I think of as, as, you know, if you feel okay about your hair, you feel okay 
There's just something about that. It's just a critical thing. And, you know, but weirdly enough, when chemo just, you know, basically I had no hair, that didn't bother me actually either in the way that I think it bothers some people. I mean, it was so beside the point by that time, mm-hmm. you know, was going to be alive or not, you know, was really the question, not whether I had hair. So I think hair is a luxury to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know that if I feel good about my hair, I have better time at lunch. I have a better meeting. I have a better everything because I just feel better about myself. Also, you know, well, yours is so long. Yeah. <laughs> I've had it like this so long. I don't even know what my personality would be without it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you know, you were saying that you, as you'd gotten older, you were kind of okay with the changes because you had your hair and your legs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you're down to. But now, now I'm just down to my legs and your baby skin. Oh yeah, my baby skin. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't feel like that, but yeah, okay. I'm happy about that too. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at mm-hmm. the end. What's your emotional age? Oh, 77. My actual age. I mean, you can't go through all this and feel like, oh, I'm still 20 or something. No, I I feel like I'm 77. Give us a book recommendation. It can either be something that you've just read recently that you liked or something that's really been significant to you. Well, I was just rereading my best friend's book, uh, East of the Sun, which is about three English women in the 1920s who uh, fail at the debutante season and are sent off to India to find men. And uh, Julie and I had been thinking of adapting it together. And it's such an amazing book about friendship. East of the Sun by Julia Gregson. Love it. What advice would you give younger women? Oh, if anyone wants to crush your dreams with their big fat foot, get out. Yeah. The best advice. Thank the best you. advice. Mm-hmm. Who is your old bird role model? I'm an older woman. I hope I'm somebody's role model. I think um, you're lots of people's role model. Well, I hope so. What's your superpower? Friendship, hands down. No question. And how many fucks do you give? I feel so lucky I'm here. I, I don't even know if that that is part of my vocabulary. I said I was going to come back to it, and I am just going to sneak it in. Tell me about the Paris Pastry Walk. Oh, oh, you know, I'm obsessed with pastries. Just obsessed with them. Okay, so um, in Paris, well, I haven't been there in a while, so I'm not, you know, I don't even know. But um, we used to stay on the left bank, and I figured out that if you sort of did this walk, you go left into the 7th, and you take this particular route you can cross a lot of bakeries. And in fact, the one that you end up in, I don't think it exists anymore uh, since we've been there, which is, I can't pronounce it. It's like Pujaram, P-O-U-J-A-H, I think. Anyway, you stop at every bakery that you pass and you buy everything that looks interesting. You buy one of everything. So like that one on Shirshmidi, I forget what it's called, but it, it has fantastic apple turnovers and delicious sugar cookies. So you buy that and you buy that and then you go to the next one. And anything that appeals to you, chocolate concoctions, lemon, almond, anything, you just buy one of. And by the time you get to the end, you have a quite a nice little bag of things. <laughs> Is it just you on your own, the two of you? Usually, whoever I'm with. No, no, just one other person. Usually, I think I've done it with two other people sometimes, but usually just whoever I'm traveling with. 
and we do this. It's a great walk through Paris. And then we walk back to the hotel and we order tea or coffee or whatever we want. And then we just sample every single one. You can buy just baguettes too. Anyway, it's just a great French thing and uh, probably my best invention ever. I think amongst many great inventions, it's (laughs) possibly the best. (laughs) You're a woman after my cake-loving heart. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I've so enjoyed this, really. Thank you. I've loved talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40 and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.